Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my wonderful collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we're walking through a thought experiment to say what's not working with our federal government. And we, we all know there's a whole lot of things not working correctly with our federal government. That's why we're over a hundred and who knows how many trillion dollars in debt. That is if you count the uh, unfunded uh, portions. But uh, it's clearly also that we find that the federal government is way, way, way outside the bounds of the borders established in our constitution kind of like a little kid that got grabbed a crayon, you know, and he went to the coloring book and started coloring all over the page outside the lines. Well, for our Congress, it's a little bit more than just outside the lines on the page. It's as if, you know, uh, the state of Arizona was covered with paper and they're on the other side of the state of Arizona and the coloring book is in the, in the top northeast corner and they're way down in the southwest corner coloring something that doesn't have anything to do. Oh, I mean, just look at the alphabet soup list of agencies, EPA, uh, OSHA, and, you know, on and on the list goes of these agencies that have no constitutional authority whatsoever. But Congress created them, continues to fund them. The executive branch acts like they are lawful, legal entities and continues to, uh, you know, put their uh, heads and their, their staff in, in place. And uh, then they continue to tyrannize. We, the people, doing things they have no authority to do. And sadly, those illegal agencies then go ahead and make administrative law that's not passed by Congress. It has no authorization in the Constitution. And they, and if you pretend that, you know, OSHA doesn't have any legal authority, you might wind up paying hundreds of thousands of fines or even going to jail for not doing what they command you. I remember one, uh, homeowner, well, actually property owner, he was planning to build his house, I believe it was in Idaho, and uh, he, he moved some gravel from one part of the property to another to prepare to build his house. And the EPA came along and fined him $40,000 per day until he moved the gravel back. And they said he couldn't build anything because it was a wetland simply because there was a puddle. That's right, a puddle not connected to any waterway whatsoever, no waterway even on the property. There was a, a stream, but that was across the street. It had nothing to do with his pride. It's just outrageous, the kind of uh, tyrannical authority that has been assumed by many, many, many of these agencies of the federal government. So what do we, the people, need to do? We need to get back to the standard. But as Phil and I are working through this thought uh, project, we're seeing that perhaps our problem is that those who ratified and drafted our, our, our Constitution weren't so clear as they needed to be on some very specific things that we now, in hindsight, you know, 200 plus years later, can look back and say, you know, it would have been better had they done this. It would have been better had they stated that. It would have been better had they limited the federal government clearly on paper so that it could not step outside those boundaries that, uh, that we, the kind of tyranny that we're now experiencing. Things like the IRS taking money directly out of our paycheck, right? We've all come to assume, well, you know, that's legitimate. That's how the government, no, no, no. None of that is legitimate, even if we just read the actual text of our existing Constitution, Article 1, Section uh, 9, uh, Clause 4, about no capitation taxes. 
So the fact that the federal government can reach into the paycheck of almost every single American and take their pay, take their cut of the money before the citizen even sees that money in their own bank is outrageous. And just a, a wall of hundreds and hundreds of examples of the kind of egregious powers that the federal government has accrued to itself, primarily because they've begun to interpret the Constitution as kind of a living document. Oh, you know, we'll, we'll, tell, we'll tell the people today what it means, and tomorrow it might mean something different, but, uh, well, when you're in that situation, you know that whoever is interpreting the Constitution to mean whatever they want it to mean, they're the ones who are the real holders of the power, which would tell us that the Supreme Court, and that's why... <laughs> Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has become so important and everybody hangs on every word of the Supreme Court because it has become that tyrant that gives permission to the rest of the federal government to do really whatever they want and to define the limits of their powers, which obviously somebody in power wants to define the limits of their power as far as they possibly can. So Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts as we walk through the legislative branch of a proposed constitution? Our subject today is Article 4. Sections 9 and 10 of the proposed legislative branch under a new constitution. Sections 8, 9, and 10 of both the current and new constitution identify the responsibilities of the parties, the states, and the party they are creating, the federal government. In effect, this is a division of sovereignty in which both powers and limitations are identified. Section 8 addresses powers of the federal government where Section 9 identifies restrictions on the power of the federal government, and Section 10 identifies restrictions on the power of the states. Let's look at Section 9 first. Section 9 of the current Constitution begins with this provision that is obsolete in a new Constitution. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior, prior to the year 1,808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. It's difficult to foresee anybody achieving any success in implementing outright physical slavery in the United States. Involuntary servitude through excessive federal taxation is a different matter. In any case, by incorporating the Declaration of Independence-inspired phrase, all persons are created equal. A new constitution shuts the door on the concept of slavery. <laughs> the next provision to the current constitution, section 9, is stated conditionally. The privilege of the writ of habeas uh, corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. One of the most dangerous things constitution can do is to provide loopholes for suspending citizens' rights. This was demonstrated in Germany's Weimar Constitution when its Article 48 was employed to launch Hitler's dictatorship. Consider the difficulties in defining a rebellion. There are some who truly believe that the demonstration at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, was a rebellion when the demonstrators were hardly armed for such an occasion, and the occasion occurred in an area most heavily protected by federal military forces, the Washington, D.C. area and surrounding counties. And realistically, what nation is militarily capable of invading the United States? A new constitution would have an unconditional provision. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. The next rule would be retained verbatim. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. The following law 
abrogated by Amendment 16 would be eliminated. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Federal government would no longer retain the power to tax, and Amendment 16, supposedly giving the federal government the power to tax income progressively, would be eliminated under a new constitution. The next rule would be retained, but would be subject to severe enforcement. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. This should be a constraint not only on Congress, but all states. Its meaning, even under the current Constitution, is quite clear. And yet it is routinely violated. Consider all the items one purchases on the internet today, and how those items are subjected to state export taxes. Pennsylvania requires its taxpayers to report taxes that have been avoided in other states that would have been otherwise taxed in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's implementation of this unconstitutional law was at one point in time so bad that it employed its state police on the Pennsylvania-Delaware border to trap purchasers of products in Delaware as they returned to Pennsylvania. Why is this practice of state export taxing so important? This exploration of the opportunities in the new constitution has revealed many deficiencies in the current federal system. Perhaps the greatest traits of the Constitution of 1787, however, is that it established the first potentially continental free trade zone in the world. A strong case can be made that the establishment of this free trade zone was a major cause of the unprecedented growth in national wealth that occurred in the 19th century. Europe did not learn this lesson until it had survived the Napoleonic Wars, wars under Bismarck, World War I, and World War II. It was in 1957, 12 years after the end of World War II, that the Treaty of Rome was signed establishing the European Economic Community, otherwise known as the EEC, which was to eliminate trade barriers among its six member nations. Early 19th century French economist Claude Frédéric Bastiat is alleged to have said, when goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. The advice was not heeded. Trade barriers remained with the non-EEC nations, primarily based upon France's objection to the United Kingdom becoming a member. Thus, the European Free Trade Association, EFTA, was created in 1960, with the United Kingdom, Austria, Portugal, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland as members. By 1995, only two of the original members remained, Norway and Switzerland, with the other five nations joining the EEC. It took Europe 206 years to attain anything approaching the common market that had been established in 1789 in the United States. The point of this history is to emphasize the importance of allowing unheeded trade to occur over state borders. The next rule to be retained in a new constitution is consistent with the free trade principle. No preference shall be given by the regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. The idea in the current constitution is outdated. This idea, I should say, in the current constitution is outdated. No money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of receipts and expenditures, all public money shall be published from time to time. The first idea, that no money shall be drawn from the treasury, 
but in consequence of appropriations made by law, would be retained. But the second idea allows the federal government, the largest business operation in the world, to employ an accounting method appropriate only for small startup operations. According to the federal government's current method, cash accounting, it has a debt exceeding $33 trillion because it is not required to estimate its liabilities due to entitlement program obligations, which some have estimated would place the federal over $100 trillion. The comparable wording under a new constitution would be, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and financial statements shall be published under accrual accounting rules and generally accepted accounting procedures, otherwise known as GAAP. Such statements shall be audited by the Council of States, and the results of this audit shall be published quarterly and annually. All statements of liability must be accompanied by estimates of the burden upon individual taxpayers and tax-paying households. The purpose of the last idea is to engage the individual taxpayer and the taxpayer household in the monitoring of federal finance. Uh, engagement by taxpayers is required if representative government is to work. A new constitution facilitates this in two ways. First, by eliminating unconstitutional legislation and funding. It shrinks the federal legislation over which the taxpayer need have oversight. The second, it provides new objective information that describes how federal legislation and funding affect taxpayers. The following would be retained in that no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office or profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Section 9 would conclude with, Congress shall pass no, no law impairing the obligation of contract. Let's move on to Section 10. Section 10 describes powers denied to this, beginning with the following, which would be retained. No state shall enter in any treaty, alliance, or confederation. Grant letters from mark and reprisal. Coin money. Emit bills of credit. Make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Pass any bill of attainder, expose back to law, or law impairing the obligation contract, or grant any title of nobility. The next rule requires revision. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws the net progress of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States, and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. <clears throat> As mentioned before, Congress should not have the power to impair trade, and it should not be given the power to allow the states to engage in that activity. The rule would be rewritten. No state shall lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports except what may be absolutely necessary for the execution, executing its inspection laws. Likewise, the subsequent rule requires revision to eliminate the consent of Congress condition. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage more, unless actually invaded, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. <clears throat> would now read, 
No state shall lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. No state shall enter into any agreement or compact with another state except as consented by the Council of States. The second part of this change keeps the federal government out of the business of interstate commerce, but allows the states to establish interstate agreements, such as those that created the Delaware River Port Authority. So in conclusion, let's talk a little bit about sharing of powers between the federal government and uh, the states. <clears throat> Both Alexander Hamilton and James Madison made the point separately that the Constitution of 1787 was to be a social contract that allowed both the federal government and the states to exercise power over what they called different objects. Hamilton called it concurrent sovereignty, while Madison called it residual sovereignty. The reader of the Federalist Essays could be excused for interpreting both views as simply different perspectives of the same thing. While Madison may have been sincere, Hamilton's actions, once he became George Washington's Secretary of Treasury, suggests something entirely different, that he wrote what he felt he needed to get the Constitution of 1787 out of Once Hamilton wrote his three reports to Congress, assuming state debts, establishing a national bank, and subsidizing politically connected businesses, Hamilton showed his true colors. Washington was in a position to overrule uh, Hamilton when he asserted that the Constitution contained implied powers. But he chose instead to ignore the advice of Madison, <clears throat> the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and his Attorney General, Edmund Randolph. The genie was out of the bottle and would never again be contained under the Constitution of 1787. <clears throat> All members of the founding generation, Madison was most informed of the history of government. Many had read Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws, in which Montesquieu had asserted the republics must be kept limited in size where they would become imperial. Montesquieu's thinking, however, was European, and the founding generation had a different perspective in which the Republican principle could be made to work on a continental scale. Madison's response to Montesquieu's challenge was create a federation of sovereign state republics bound together with a federation having limited enumerated powers to the extent that the United States became what to some is the greatest nation on earth certainly an insult to every other nation. Madison was correct, but the United States' emergence as an imperial power, contradicting its founders' promise, demonstrated there was more to Montesquieu's argument than he has been given credit for. The jury remains out on this subject. We the people, the Constitution matters, has explored the Constitution of 1787 and related subjects for six years. It has become obvious that Hamilton's implied powers pardon me, ultimately can be taken to their logical extreme, a national as opposed to a federal government, and an authoritarian government serving the needs of politically connected special interests as opposed to we the people. It should also be obvious that simplistic and ineffectual amendments to the Constitution of 1787, such as legislative term limits and a balanced budget amendment, are little more than prescribing aspirin to cure stage four cancer, like Dr. Frankenstein. We have reached a point at which we can no longer con uh, control the monster we have created. There are ways in which we might return to truly representative government, but they all require that we recognize the vehicle in which we have been riding, the Constitution of 1787, has structural flaws that threaten our liberty. 
The most important part to remember is the Constitution of 1787 is a political contract among the states. The federal government is not a party to that contract in the sense that it did not even exist when the original parties contracted. It is a creature of that contract. Therefore, it is senseless to give that created entity plenary power over the states and thereby over the people the states represent. We must recognize that the federal government has been created to protect our lives and our liberties, and that the powers the federal government enjoys should go no further than that. It is the height of irrationality to assume that a federal government should be able to seize our wealth in return for counterfeit money it creates. A federal government should be allowed to survive only when it respects the rule of its creation. Since it has been created by the state, only the state should determine how it should be funded, which powers it should have, and what funds it should have to enable it to complete its mission. We have drifted a long way from these original truths, and it is not just a matter of patching a document made of us, uh, which we have come to revere, while it is premature to adopt an alternative, which has been the subject of this series. We must begin to build an understanding of how that alternative might appear. There is little sense in rushing to get somewhere when we don't know where that destination is. <laughs> Amen, Phil. Yes, I love I love your uh, word picture there of uh, you know applying aspirin to stage four cancer, and uh, <laughs> we're, we're the, as a uh, people in that stage four where our federal government's so far out of balance uh, that uh, it, it's just r- really hard to comprehend. And that's the problem for most Americans; they have a hard time comprehending. That our constitution actually does, our current constitution does not permit them to do most of the things that they are doing, uh, but they do them nonetheless uh, out of the ignorance of we the people. And uh, that stage four cancer needs to be uh, dealt with with uh, some radical surgery, uh, you know, uh, radiation treatment and so forth. Otherwise, it's true that we the people are going to completely lose our, our liberties. And I uh, agree with you wholeheartedly on the point about habeas corpus. And by the way, I know that not all the listeners might understand what that term is, so let me explain. Habeas corpus is literally the Latin for show the body. And what this means is that if the government arrests you, so, you know, uh, it throws you in prison, uh, kind of like they did with the J6 uh, uh, folks, you have to have some charges listed against them. In that case, the J6 folks were charged with a terrible crime of trespassing. Usually trespassing involves a fine or something like that, but no, no, no. They want to treat these people as political prisoners, which is what they're doing with the J6 folks. But um, anyway, if there's a charge leveled against you that you have violated certain laws, uh, so there's a you know a list of what those charges are, what the actual laws are that you're being charged with violating, and you're given due process, that is, you're able to be brought to a trial. By the way, our, our current constitution uh, 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 secures or promises a sp- speedy trial. I don't think those folks, the J6 folks, have gotten a speedy trial. They've been rotting in prison for years, and um, they're just playing games with the with those poor folks. But uh, the whole idea is that there's a due process by which you're going to have a jury of your peers look at the evidence that's brought into court, hear uh, the witnesses and the cross-examination, and the whole process of that trial is involved in due process, and you're guaranteed that and habeas corpus says that if you're if the government throws you in prison, doesn't charge you with any crime, basically throws away the key, doesn't ever bring you to trial, that you can apply for a writ of habeas corpus, that is, 
the 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 lawyer representing you uh, before the government is going to demand set my client free. You have not charged them with any crime. You have not shown any due process that uh, he's going to have his day in court. Instead, you're just treating him as a political prisoner, throwing him in and throwing away the key. And, uh, uh, so this protection is very important that, as you say, Phil, it should never be able to be suspended, uh, you know, whereas the, our current constitution and the section nine of article one puts a condition that AI yeah, can be suspended in cases of rebellion or invasion, uh, the public safety may require. And by the way, note that this in our current constitution is in the legislative article, article one. Of course, in this proposed constitution, we're making that article four, basically parallel in structure to one another, just a different number. On it. But the, uh, with the idea that the legislature and the legislature alone can choose to suspend habeas corpus. And of course, I love what you're doing here, Phil, and, and proposing that in the new constitution, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. Even Congress can not suspend it. And I, uh, the history, a little history behind why it's so important to say, no, 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 nobody can suspend it, took place in 1861. That terrible and unnecessary war that I think is only fairly called the war between the states. In that case, the 16th president arrested thousands of northerners. That's right, not people in the South, people in the North, thousands of Northerners who either printed or spoke uh, criticism of the government, criticism of the administration of Lincoln, criticism of the way the war was being conducted, or even criticism that the war was being conducted at all, which was uh, Northerners that were mockingly called copperheads. And this is tragic because many of these people, their livelihoods were destroyed. Uh, in many cases, the printing presses, get this, this is, this is how Lincoln did it. The printing press that was used to publish an article that might have been critical of the administration or critical of the way the war was being conducted or critical of any, anything, you know, he didn't like his beard or whatever. Any criticism of the government was deemed libelous slander. And the army, that's right, the Union army was sent to many of these printing houses, these printing presses, these newspapers. And they went in and destroyed everything that could be used to produce something printed, a book or a newspaper. In some cases, they took the printing press and dumped it in, in, the, in the river nearby. And they basically destroyed the business. They arrested the employees, threw them in the prison, never charging them with a crime. Because the First Amendment says you have the right to print and publish sentiments that, you know, somebody like Lincoln might not like what you're saying about him. But you have a God-given right to freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of assembly and freedom to appeal to the government for a redress of grievances. Freedom, in other words, to criticize the government and say, hey, you're doing things wrong here. <laughs> this is exactly what we're doing here on We the People, the Constitution Matters. We are criticizing our current government. And uh, at this point in time, nobody has uh, come knocking on our door, but uh, no guarantee that that won't happen particularly with the current administration, the Biden administration, what it is doing uh, to people who simply protest the murder of babies. We have a friend who currently has been put into solitary confinement. Why? Because she protests the murder of babies. Why solitary confinement? That's, that's cruel and unusual punishment in my view, and it has nothing to do with what she's charged. And in fact, her case is being appealed. And I would think on while she's, uh, you know, appealing the case that uh, 
they would let her out on bond and give her let her out on bond. Oh no, no, no. The federal government has thrown her into solitary confinement because they hate anyone who loves babies and wants to protect babies from being murdered in the womb. So this this writ of habeas corpus is very powerful. English uh, common law go all the way back to Magna Carta established this and, and it reestablished uh, time and time again as tyrants do not like a limitation on their power to strip us of our God-given rights to freedom and our God-given rights to speech and our God-given rights to publish. And so it is important to understand why this writ of habeas corpus, this privilege, this not privilege, I should say, but this right, God-given right of habeas corpus, and maybe might suggest a change in language there, Phil, with that instead of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, but Maybe the God-given right of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended might be a little more forceful because that's where that comes from. We have a right to justice. We have a right if somebody arrests us in the government, throws us in prison, we have a right to be you know, given, here's the list of charges against you. Here's the laws you supposedly violated in order that you can prepare for a, a trial. You can prepare for uh, your day in court. And so extremely important that that, that be uh, preserved and not allowed to be suspended in any way, shape, or form. Now, uh, ex post facto, just again to explain to folks what that is, it's a law that when it's passed, would attempt to criminalize behavior before the law was passed that was legal when you did it. And I'll love this simple illustration. Just think of you're driving down a road, they've got uh, you know speed cameras on the road and so forth. The speed limit is uh, 50 miles an hour. And then they suddenly change the speed limit to 40 miles an hour. And they go back and look at all the cars that went down that street over 40 miles an hour. And they send them all a bill for $100. You know, you owe $100 because you're speeding. Well, wait a minute. The law said it was 50 miles an hour when I was driving down the road. How can you change that? That's an ex post facto. Very, very criminal on the part of a government to do such a thing. But governments, the history of the world over, have shown their their willingness to to not follow God's standards of justice and uh, the bill of attainder is a uh, a function where the legislature acts like a court and so the legislature looks at evidence and so forth and they vote we're going to vote this person guilty or not guilty but that's not the job of the legislature that's the job of the judiciary and so preventing a bill of attainder then uh, keeps the judicial functions in the judicial branch and the legislative functions in uh, the legislative branch. Again, and, uh, I'm glad to see the taxation of the 16th Amendment eliminated and therefore not even needing to say no capitation or other direct tax. No tax, period, can be laid by the federal government. Uh, that is entirely a business of the state governments through the state council uh, and the states then paying into the federal treasury. But the federal government can never reach out and touch the pocketbook, the paycheck, of anyone in a republic under uh, the proposed uh, constitution that we're speaking of, and so that would that would be a huge relief uh, to America. It's one of the most feared agencies of the federal government, is IRS, and they're hiring eighty-seven thousand. They've got budget of billions, and and by the way, they've been buying billions of rounds of ammunition. I think it is, or maybe it's hundreds of millions. I don't know. It's a lot of ammunition, and they've been buying assault weapons. You know what the the left tells, oh, be very afraid. These are very terrible, terrible weapons. Nobody should have them. But, oh, the IRS is buying up huge numbers of uh, military-grade weapons. Oh, why is that? Who are they going to war against? They're going to war against accountants? No, they're going to war against we, uh, the people. And by the way, if you want to see what the war looks like, 
that the IRS does conduct against citizens. I encourage you to check this out on the web. You just need to type in uh, from freedom to fascism, from freedom to fascism. Aaron Russo is the uh, uh, director who put that uh, documentary together. Very uh, stunning job that he did, but a very uh, powerful expose of the evils of the IRS. That's an agency needs to be disbanded completely. And all those people put to work with some constructive uh, work. And perhaps some of them really need to be punished because they have been violating the laws. I think that uh, that uh, documentary freedom to uh, from freedom to fascism amply uh, demonstrates. Now, on the free trade zone and on the states, amen. That's exactly what we need. We need to be certain that no state is taxing imports or exports from uh, their state uh, and doing what uh, you talked about the state of Pennsylvania doing to those coming across the border uh, from Pennsylvania, from Delaware into Pennsylvania. By the way, I know that happens quite a bit in Maryland because people go to Delaware to buy clothing because there's no sales tax. And they come back into Maryland with the clothing they purchased in Delaware, and, and Maryland wants to try to tax them. They haven't done what, what Pennsylvania did, posting state troopers at the border. But uh, you know they send you a form every year saying, you need to declare all the things that you purchased out of state and you did not pay uh, the state uh, sales tax on. And uh, you know that is exactly what this is forbidding. No state can tax imports or uh, tax exports. And that is the way it should be. There should be a free trade zone. Uh, otherwise, what's the point of having a country together? Uh, you know, if we were to split up into five countries, one of the disadvantages of that breakup would be that it's probably going to involve taxes on any goods that cross those boundaries, the frontiers between one country uh, and another country. Um, and so that that is important that we maintain a free trade zone in, in our country. And and the provision there is to say that except what might be required for uh, inspection of in, uh, goods coming into a state. And you might wonder what that is. Uh, I've encountered this uh, entering California. California, in order to protect its uh, its uh, breadbasket to San Joaquin Valley and, and where so much fruit, vegetables, and nuts are grown and, and that sort of thing that um, they want to prevent uh, uh, pests in on, uh, on, on, on people's fruits and so forth if they're bringing them into the state. So there's a, a, a real actual function that can take place uh, when, when a state is uh, allowing goods to come into the state to protect the, the well-being of uh, their state. Now, the, the states, as you rightly state, this, the states are the party to this new compact as the states were the party to the old compact, which was the exact reason why in this new compact, we don't have a Supreme Court that is above everything. And the Supreme Court at the federal level deciding everything because that cuts the states out of the, the equation. The states are the ones in their council of states to make determinations about what the limits on the federal government are to be. And those limits need to be maintained. And quite clearly, we've seen our federal government expand enormously because the federal government has said that it is the determiner of its own boundaries, the boundaries of its own power. Consider if you live in a neighborhood, what this might look like. You know, one homeowner says, I'm the one, I am the one and the only one that determines my property boundaries. And I'm going to take 50 feet off of this guy's property because I'm the one that determines the property boundaries. Well, the other guy is having his property stolen from him. It's like, wait, wait a minute, who... Who died and made you king and God that you can determine the property boundaries? We've got the survey lines. We've, we've got the uh, plat and deeds and all these things that determine where those property boundaries are. You don't get to determine that. 
And again, that's what our constitution is supposed to do. It's supposed to function as those boundary lines that say, no, the federal government cannot transgress these limitations. But the federal government, beginning with Marbury v. Madison and, and other Supreme Court cases since then, has said, no, no, no. We, the federal government, we get to determine what those boundary lines are. You know, the Alexander Hamilton idea that there's implied powers in the Constitution. And, and well, we think a, a, a national bank. Yeah, well, that's included in the, you can read between the lines if you have the special glasses that you get at law school or something like that. No, that's all. And that has allowed the states to basically become subsumed and the states to be subservient to the federal government. Rather than the federal government being the servant of the states, the states have become the servants of the federal government, not at all what our founders had at all in mind. Now, total agreement on titles of nobility, yes. And that's extremely important because according to our uh, Declaration of Independence, we are all made by God and we're all made, therefore, equal under the law. Now, it's important that we don't misconstrue what that is stating. It's not staying equality of outcome and everybody has the same income, lives in the same house, drives the same car, clothes. No, no, no. Not equality of outcome, equality of opportunity, but most of all, equality before the law. That is, everyone is equal before the law, unlike the titles of nobility in the old world that would grant some people some special privileges, kind of a, you know, sort of a monopoly sort of structure where somebody didn't have to pay the taxes that his neighbor had to pay because, you know, he got a special privilege. By the way, there's things like that that go on in our country all the time. I've sat in county council meetings in our uh, county here in mid in the central of Maryland, and uh, there's been proposals that have actually passed to say, you know, all of our first responders, the police and fire, we're going to give them a special property tax discount that they get because of their job. Nobody else gets it. Which means, by the way, everybody else pays for the discount they get. Because if they're getting a discount on their property tax, you could bet your bottom dollar the, Fed, the the county government in this case is not going to reduce its revenue. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to take it out of the pockets of everybody else that doesn't get this special discount. So, you know, our, our county went ahead and created a title of nobility that if you're a police officer, you're you know, first responder, fire, those. Yeah. Oh, no. That's, that's a violation of the very foundational principles that uh, equality under the law was established that we're all created in the image of God uh, and therefore have uh, God-given rights, one of which is that we, under the law, are to be treated equally. Uh, and uh, that, again, as you pointed out, Phil, uh, Hamilton chipped away at that, particularly uh, in, in the report that had to do with manufacturers, where basically he was giving uh, special privileges to well-connected political uh, operatives in in our, our uh, very young country, and uh, therefore the uh, the true colors came out of saying that you know there's some people that are going to get a, a good deal, a better deal than others. That's really creating uh, a title of nobility that that should not be. Now, uh, just make a final comment here about the uh, Montesquieu's idea that uh, a large republic will not work, and Madison countered say, well, no, no, we we structured this so it can work. But we've seen, no, it hasn't worked all that well, particularly as we've gotten larger and larger geographically. But perhaps what we're proposing here and this new idea of a constitution could right the balance. That is, give the states very explicit powers to prevent the federal government from getting outside the boundaries and the lines of the constitution that, that we're talking about. What's your thoughts, Phil? 
Well, first, uh, the writing, uh, uh, the right of habeas corpus, good correction. Uh, this is not a privilege. It, it does derive from our God-given rights, and uh, therefore it cannot be considered a, a privilege. So we're in agreement. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no problem there. Yep. Other, other thoughts on uh, the struggle to keep the federal government are we giving enough power to the states? I guess that, that's my big concern. Are we giving enough power to the states to actually stop the federal government from encroaching on the boundaries established? Because obviously it didn't work in the 1787 uh, constitution. Their proposed limits on the federal government bah, run over, like you said, in the very first administration under, under Washington, uh, Hamilton began to run over those lines right away. Well, I think that the way we have undertaken this project, this series, if you will, demonstrates uh, the true purpose of what we're trying to do, which is not to say, here, this is the perfect way. Um, very major changes have been made in the current constitution to arrive at a new constitution. No question about that. But what we're doing here is throwing out ideas. And just as you came back to me and said, hey, habeas corpus is not our privilege. That's a right. Bingo. That's where, you know, Community discussion of these ideas is so important. We can move towards something that is more nearly perfect, not more perfect, which is dramatic <laughs> <Yes>. absurdity. <laughs> yeah, but which is more nearly perfect uh, than what we had before. So I'd like to address the idea of the, the Council of States here, where they they fit in. Some critics, no doubt, will say, "Well, you know, you've got the state legislatures. Why don't we have the state legislatures?" do that, do all these things that the Council of States uh, uh, is, is empowered to do. And the point about that is that the states should be concerned about those things that are truly states. The states have entered into an agreement that creates another entity. Now, the entity didn't exist before the, the state said, let's create it. Now they need a board of directors to assure that uh, that contract that was established, that social contract that was established, uh, is being executed appropriately. That's the board of directors' role. And so these people who are uh, <laughs> elected to the council state would have that function only and would not be involved in state uh, legislation and execution and judicial uh, functions. And uh, I wonder, you know, one of the problems we see in Washington, D.C. clearly today is the enormous power of unelected lobbyists, you know, those who have enormous amounts of money and have, therefore, enormous amounts of influence with Congress. There's a whole street in Washington, they call it K Street, that's lined with lobbying firms. And uh, these lobbying firms will work for any company that wants to dump millions of dollars in their pocket, and they'll go after, you know, whatever agenda, you know, even foreign governments are hiring these lobbyists as well, including CCP, by the way. So, uh, you know, these lobbyists have enormous power. And obviously, if we uh, push back the, the, uh, the kind of powers that the federal government has, there's far less incentive for them to be lobbying down there in Washington, D.C. But I'm wondering if the lobbying then might turn against the, uh, the Council of the States. Uh, and I'm, I'm just talking out loud here because I don't have any specific formulation in my mind of how we might protect against lobbying influence. Uh, those people in the Council of States would truly be serving interest of the people, uh, not only in their own states, but in all, all 50 states, that uh, that would be 
uh, accomplished rather than allowing the kind of lobbying mess that we have today where, you know, people really aren't, aren't being represented by Senate or House. The lobbyists are being represented in the Senate and the lobbyists are being represented in the House. And that, usually that's the end of the story. We should people get at the short end of the stick. What do you think? Well, there are a number of reasons why that should not work in the future, that lobbyists would not be effective against a council of states. One of the things um, in the proposed constitution is that it would not have a physical uh, presence. It would be done electronically from the states. You know, we're very fortunate that electronics can support that kind of a mechanism. It's no longer necessary to bring people down into Washington, D.C., or any other location. That's That has, in the past, been essential. I mean, you talk about K Street, which I think of as killing liberty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. K Street uh, works because everybody's concentrated. Think of how many um, federal officials, officials they can affect in a day. They could not do that. You know, one of the things about electronics is that you have to have these, these records that you create no, no. These are hushed conversations that, that occur right now behind closed doors, and that's what makes lobbying work. That's why special interests are so effective. Now, there's a second part of that. Right now, there's so many ambiguities in the current Constitution that all of these loopholes and, and opportunities exist for um, lobbyists and their corresponding representatives, officials, and so forth. Uh, to do their mischief. But if these ambiguities are shut down, then you don't have the opportunities that you had in the past. So it's a, it's a matter of two things working together. Mm-hmm. Amen. And, and I would agree, one of the biggest problems of our current system, and I believe it's really a misinterpretation of the Constitution, is the central bank, you know, Hamilton argued for it. I believe he was dead wrong, uh, but he won that argument. And it was the first central bank, uh, national bank, and the second national bank. And and uh, Andrew Jackson famously shut that one down. And he he rightly said, "Yeah, you know, this is a, this this thing is of the devil. Yeah, it's uh, the money changers in the temple." And so he said, "You know, like Jesus was driving the money changers out. He was driving the money changers out of our government, which was a, a good thing." But then 1913 comes along, and lo and behold, something even worse than the first and the second national bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, which is not national, uh, not in, in the control of Congress. Uh, yeah, there's some people who get appointed to that uh, uh, by the you know decision of the president, but they have no accountability, as Ron Paul repeatedly showed when he attempted to audit the Fed. There was an absolute refusal because they say, we're independent of you. No, we're actually above you. And that's indeed what they are when they create the money and control the money supply and all the things that the, the Federal Reserve does control the interest rate. So by eliminating that, we eliminate enormous flow of money to the federal government where the government gets to you know, control things by uh, that, that power. Well, when that's gone, again, like you're saying, there won't be the huge amount of money to spend, uh, oh, say, in the military industrial complex or the medical pharma complex, uh, all, the, all the different places it winds up going today that are influenced by K Street. Those, those, uh, you know, those lobbyists are able to influence enormous flows of money. Well, if there's very little money blowing out of the coffers of the federal government because it's not in their uh, control any longer, they can't print money out of thin air or, or have the Federal Reserve print money out of thin air and further in debt us as a people, then a lot of that problem, I think, will be resolved simply by taking away 
uh, that flow uh, of money. Well, I think a lot of the, of the logic or illogic, if you will, uh, behind the idea of a central bank is that money is a special commodity. And yes and no, um, money is fundamentally a product. I mean, for example, um, there was a time before uh, we used metal uh, for coins when shells operated very nicely uh, for some for some societies, and even uh, cows, as I recall. Um, but we've dwelt on metallic money as being very convenient because it has some value as a pure product as opposed to a medium of exchange. Virtually anything can become a medium of exchange. I mean, if, if we had no confidence in the currency that we were using, we would rapidly go to something else. Uh, and this happened after World War II. Um, in, in Europe, uh, you, know, you had all of this phony money floating around as a result of the war and the attempts to, to finance it. So the money was useless. Um, basically, people were searching for things, commodities that they could use. And curiously, um, cigarettes and nylons worked quite nicely. Yeah. So there's nothing magical about money other than the fact that it can operate as a medium of exchange. And still, it is. it should be uh, exposed to the powers of supply and demand and the free market selection of price for that money. Uh, there's no role for government in that whatsoever. Um, uh, elsewhere, I think I've made the comment that the idea that uh, uh, the government can can uh, establish the value of money is an absurdity. I mean, how is value established? Value is established on a, an individual transaction basis. And the basic idea is that if party A and party B agree at a certain price, uh, that's the, the so-called value of that transaction. Do another transaction and the parties might not agree. So there's nothing permanent that the government can do to establish a value. What it can do is to identify a denomination, one of the face of any fiscal money. That's reasonable, but not, it, it can't go beyond that. And like you, you point out that, you know, uh, maybe you call it commodity money, like gold and silver, there is a fluctuation in the market. And even if you were just to compare gold versus silver, uh, those values, it, it alter such that, uh, you know, sometimes silver is a better advantage than gold or vice versa. So even, even in the commodity, like you say, the market plays with all of those numbers such that, uh, we just let the, we need to let the free market have rain. And, uh, that is a far better system than trying to have the central control, which we know what that central control idea is. That's communism. You know, uh, the central control of the economy is exactly what Karl Marx said was, uh, necessary in, in their, uh, the, his vision of uh, a society which is completely controlled top-down and where basically no one has freedom at all. Everyone becomes, a, well, a slave of the government, you might say, is uh, how, how that works out, which is not good for anyone, as we see clearly in, in every, every attempt at doing that communist kind of system. Whoa, it is an awful disaster. The lives, the liberties, the property of the people are destroyed when, when that, that is allowed. So yeah, that uh, taking taking that away and allowing people to buy and, and sell and trade with commodities of their choosing uh, is is the best path. Now, one of the challenges we have to that today is uh, the push towards digital currency. And I don't think digital currency in and of itself is bad. 
I mean, people choose to, you know, do Bitcoin and that sort of thing and exchange by that means, wonderful. But to force everyone into a digital currency transaction, which is uh, one of the goals of the World Economic Forum, as well as some other uh, uh, globalists, they want control of And they've actually admitted the reason they want this control is they want to know what every single person is spending with every single transaction. They want absolute tyranny over financial transactions, and, and that cannot cannot be permitted. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the communists and the, the idea of centralization of power. Uh, if you look back through history, you, you observe what I call a thought chain. Um, you know, where did this idea of centralization of power come from? Uh, did it come from Karl Marx? Not really. Curiously, uh, Karl Marx uh, really borrowed the idea from Adam Smith. Yeah, and uh, that's the subject of a book, one of the, the topics in, in a book that I've written, um, A Tale of Four Cities. And you see that, that Adam Smith, curiously, the so-called um, uh, paragon of free market system, really <clears throat> took the first steps to create the contention that we see today by observing that profit was a deduction from the legitimate wages of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, uh, the laborer. And Karl Marx gave him credit. And now when you, you look at, and, and by the way, uh, all history uh, you know, has been this idea of centralized power. The idea of, of, of distributed political power comes out of the Enlightenment, uh, comes out of people like, like uh, John Locke and Jefferson and, and so forth. Um, it is a phenomenal idea, but it has not been really totally uh, proven. No, and this is where we are. We have to prove that representative government can work. And indeed, we believe it can. Otherwise, we wouldn't be uh, working on this project. But in order for it to work, we need a educated populace. And again, this is where one of the failures of our current system has come in, that the populace has not been educated on civics, has not been taught uh, the Constitution, has not been taught the founding principles that, are, that, are, that were clearly ensconced in the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. And the result is people have kind of believed that, well, our government will just operate on autopilot. You know, we show up every four years and we click the right the levers in the in the voting booth there. And, you know, it just sort of operates automatically. And our founder said, no way. You've got to fight for liberty. And that's why we exist here. We, the people, the Constitution matters to educate people on those founding principles, to build a grassroots movement whereby we can recover the liberties and the freedoms for which our constitutional republic was established. Check out our website, 1180wfyl.com. Check out our podcast there and join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution matters.